0: Kia and welcome to the Kaka. This is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter via Substack. And today I wanted to focus on the big migration announcement from the government you might have heard about in the last day or so. This is actually the third loosening of migration settings in the last five months from the government. All up, the government has given visas for working and residents of more than 330,000 in the last six to 12 months. That's despite a lot of noise, uh, certainly up until May this year, about an immigration rebalance or reset, which was designed to slow down the large numbers of net migration seen coming to New Zealand in the last decade or so, which pushed our population growth rate to close to 2% for almost a decade. Now, that's the fastest in the developed world we clearly hadn't built enough infrastructure for it. Instead of saying, well, we've built it and now you can come, we said, come on in. Oh, and we haven't built it. Well, that was that was fine because uh, during COVID, of course, we had negative net migration as uh, we couldn't actually get people into the country. Now, of course, we've got labour shortages here and all around the world and increasing demands from employers to turn the inflation tap to turn the immigration tap back on again. The extra uh, issue for the government is that it has high inflation to deal with and lots of calls from employers to bring in migrants to take some of the edge off wage inflation. So for the last five months, the government has been progressively loosening the migration settings that had previously tightened And it has done it in a variety of ways, including increasing the number of working holidaymakers who can come, reopening the skilled migrant category visa, and this week, making significant extensions to the so-called green list for work-to-residency visas, and those visas where you get a residency visa right up front. Now, of course, it's much more attractive for an employer to say to a potential employee living overseas, That if you come here on this particular type of visa, you only need to stay in work for a couple of years and then you get residency in New Zealand. That gives you the right, for example, to bring your family out, get access to all of our publicly funded healthcare and education. And uh, that has been um, one of the big drivers of the growth of our population in the last decade. A lot of people come on temporary work visas or work to residence visas and then stay. Now, you could say, well, this is all good stuff. We've been doing this for 20 years or so, and there's been a lot of um, complaints and concerns about a lack of staffing, particularly in hospitals and in schools, but widely across the tourism sector and all sorts of areas where we have shortages of both skilled and unskilled people. And the way that we've reacted to this in the past, or at least in the last 20 years or so, is that when we have labour shortages, we pull in people who are migrants. But let's step back a bit and think about what really is going on here and the particular problems the government is trying to address, and whether or not it is actually taking a more sensible, or at least considered, longer-term set of uh, political and economic choices. So we have in New Zealand, I think, a policy trilemma, uh, sometimes called the Unholy Trinity, Now, you might have heard of the unholy trinity as a a particular way of describing a problem for an economy that has a fixed exchange rate. Now, the unholy trinity says that you can't have, at the same time, a fixed exchange rate, free movement of capital, and uh, independent operation of monetary policy. Something has to give. And that's true for New Zealand. Um, That was the argument behind the floating of our currency in the late 80s, and the free movement of capital in the uh, wake of the end of the Muldoon government. That's the policy trilemma there. But actually, we have our own policy trilemma, an unholy trinity, around our policies for economic growth, for the management of our population, and also how much we invest in infrastructure. We know, for example, that we have... Underinvested in infrastructure to the tune of $100 billion over the last 30 years. That's the conclusion from the Infrastructure Commission this year. And that if our population growth runs at about half the level it was for the last decade, about 0.7%, then we'd need to invest another $100 billion just to keep up with that population growth and to continue to reinvest to fix uh, the pipes and the roads as they need repairing, so effectively making sure our investment keeps up with our depreciation. So that's a $200 billion task, simply to keep up with an expected level of population growth, which was already slower than what we've seen in the last decade. Now, one of the responses to this um, problem from the government was to say, actually, we can't afford $200 billion. That would require the government to either increase its debt substantially or to increase taxes or use congestion charges or water charges very aggressively. That's what the three waters debate is all about. Effectively a way to avoid having to take on debt onto the, in theory, the Crown's balance sheet uh, and therefore increasing interest costs for the government, and also uh, trying to uh, uh, take the political decisions about water charges and debt out of the hands of local voters and actually central government voters. Now that's one response to effectively not address the issue in public and to try to sneak around it with a political mechanism. Uh, The other uh, uh, approach is to say okay well if we can't afford the infrastructure investment for all the population growth that we're going to get if we assume that population keeps growing from migration as fast as it has in the last decade. Well, then we need to slow down the population growth because the existing residents simply don't want to spend the money on infrastructure or, more importantly, don't want to pay the higher taxes and have the higher debts for that. So what we end up with is a policy trilemma. And the three corners of that trilemma are that we can't actually have high population growth and high nominal GDP growth at the same time as low taxes and low investment. And the third part of that trilemma, we can't have free movement of people all at the same time. At some point, something has to give. Either that there is not nearly enough infrastructure for all the people, the congestion and the pain of high land prices gets too much and effectively the people who can't afford this or aren't benefiting from high land prices eventually leave. And we're starting to see that from existing New Zealand residents going to live in Australia. Now You might remember this debate from way back in the uh, late 2000s through the 2010s when, for example, John Key as opposition leader had a photo opportunity in the Westpac Stadium in which he said, look here at this empty stadium, 36,000 seats, that's the number of New Zealanders who've chosen to leave New Zealand and live in Australia. That helped get him elected in 2008 and he ran a, a an investigation into how to close the gap between Australia and New Zealand. And for um, a serious amount of time, from about 2014 onwards to 2019, the number net of New Zealanders leaving to live in Australia actually dropped substantially. But we're now seeing a significant pickup. And that's because, in relative terms, housing costs in Australia are now cheaper than in New Zealand. And that adds to the 30 to 40% higher wages in Australia. And in particular, when you look at housing costs relative to incomes, they are significantly lower in Australia than here, which means there is more spare money for people to save deposits for their own homes. And so what we've seen over the last year or so is a significant pickup in New Zealand residents leaving New Zealand to go and live in Australia. You might say, well, what's the point of that? You get there and you're not a first-class citizen, um, you can't get access to the welfare and healthcare systems, and eventually you have to bounce back to New Zealand. And we can see that in the stats over the last 20 years. A lot of people who left in the early 2000s, particularly after the 2001 cut-off, where John Howard stopped New Zealanders getting full rights as citizens, a lot of people did bounce back. They were forced back. They essentially saved deposits and came home. But now that the Australian government is very keen to see New Zealanders come and live permanently in Australia and have full citizenship rights, which we're likely to see confirmed next year on Anzac Day, there is the potential risk here that we flush out New Zealand residents to Australia and then replace them, with migrants coming from other places who are less choosy about where they live and less worried about their housing costs or maybe uninformed about those housing costs. So, the problem here is that uh, both national and Labor are failing to address this unholy trinity, this impossible trilemma, where to actually continue to have high population growth, you need to increase your investment in infrastructure or risk an outflow of people, in particular New Zealanders, that you end up chasing your tail, trying to replace them with people coming in from overseas. To solve this policy trilemma, effectively you need to increase your investment in infrastructure and in business investment both to simply cope with the extra people that come, but also to increase your productivity as employees. It's clear from all the research here and overseas that the way to improve your productivity naturally is to invest in public infrastructure. For example, the UFB network, which was a very effective uh, public intervention in investing in infrastructure that everyone uses and is now the core of our digital economy, and uh, also investing in things like public transport, electricity networks, those sorts of things. That works to increase productivity, for, even for those people working in the private sector. Secondly, businesses need to invest in their own businesses to improve the output per hour work of people who work in those businesses. So that means investing in technology and training and systems and uh, different management scales to um, become more productive. So, how do you do that? Well, in New Zealand we have a brutally skewed tax system which encourages people to invest in residential land and then to profit tax-free from the increases in that residential land. And when you have a small business sector and median voting sector that can only see a way ahead for themselves if they can buy more residential land and get more tax-free leveraged gains from that residential land, and they also know that to ensure they continue to get those gains, or at least to protect the ones they've got, the way to do that is to stop investment in infrastructure that would enable new housing supply, to ensure that governments, both central and local, don't spend and increase debts, because every increase in uh, debt by local or central government increases interest rates all other things being held equal. And that means that it's in the interests of median voters and most small businesses to ensure that the size of government remains small, that taxes remain small, that investment remains low, and that uh, the value of residential land keeps accelerating, in part due to an increase in the population, which is uncatered for with infrastructure spending. So we're in this political trap where neither labour nor national really want to address the elephant in the room, which is how big do we want our population to be, and do we want to have higher taxes and debt, and therefore lower land values, to properly deal with that increased population, and to invest in our infrastructure and our businesses to ensure higher real wage growth so that we can keep the people we've got. Instead, we just don't talk about it. And this week's announcements of the third loosening of migration controls show how both parties have essentially used the migration lever as a short-term way to deal with political pressures and economic pressures, which work in the short term to lower government debt, lower government deficits, to increase nominal GDP, which again increases tax increase tax revenues and therefore helps your, reduce your public debt, takes pressure off interest rates and again serves in the interests of landowners who want more tax-free capital gains. Essentially, every problem in our political economy comes back to this fundamental issue. We are a housing market with bets tacked on because we refuse to have the higher taxes and in particular a wealth or residential land tax to fund the increased infrastructure to cope with the extra people we've got. And if we really wanted to solve this problem, either we'd invest or we'd restrict migration. Instead, we're choosing to not invest and release restrictions on migration. How do we think this is all going to end? Well, uh, I asked some of these questions yesterday of the Prime Minister and... Uh, Michael Wood, who is the Immigration Minister, and started off simply by asking how many people does the government expect this policy will bring in, because it was revealed earlier in the press conference, the government had no economic advice about what this big set of changes meant for the economy in terms of jobs growth, inflation, population growth, interest rates, and the like. An enormous economic policy change, in theory, without any advice and without any reference to this fundamental weakness in our political economy. Here are my questions and answers to Jacinda Ardern and Michael Wood. How many extra workers do you think these changes might bring in? I the
1: Minister of Immigration speak to that. Yeah. it will vary from sector to sector, Bernard, and the nature of the immigration settings that we have is that we don't set a particular target across any sector or across, across the system. The nature of the way that our system works is that it's effectively based on um, is there a need for these people in individual sectors. So in some sectors, for example, uh, bus drivers, where we've, um, uh, in today's announcements, confirmed a sector agreement in that place. Where it's a smaller workforce. We have a pretty good handle. It's probably around 1,000 to 1,500 drivers that we think we're short. Now, will that all be filled by migrant workers? Probably not, We're going to because we're going to be pushing both levers—the domestic training workforce—but we also think that um, migration plays an important part there. So it's difficult to give an overall figure, but we know that we know that immigration plays an, one important role in filling these shortages.
0: So, what advice have you received about you know how much of a need there is and how many extra workers this, these policies might? come in or is there no forecast on that either? Well across
1: the engagement that we've had with different sectors we get different estimates and if I can give one example of that so for example the truck driving sector we've had different sector groups who have had slightly different views as to what they think the shortfall actually is. We do the best when we're looking at these situations to determine where we think there are real needs and that's what we've responded to in these announcements.
0: From immigration or Treasury on either the workforce or
2: economic effects of this change? Uh, so look, first, firstly, on the workforce, for instance, some of those individual sectors will have uh, the number of vacancies that they hold now and their projections over the workforce need in the next five to ten years and how much uh, we are producing domestically through our current training uh, pathways. So we do have that for some of those individuals. I don't have it here specifically right now for you on some of those individual sections, but that's kind of the analysis that Immigration New Zealand do before the they are putting forward the suggestions over whether they believe there is genuinely a domestic shortage. Um, keep in mind, what we've signalled here is a list that will move on to a pathway to residency or a work to residency and others that will go straight. Those are already workers that we've already made the decision there's a shortage over. We're just repositioning them on the lists in some cases. So Extra ones, we'll be making decisions on a March and that's where we get a bit more granular detail. So how's
0: this different from any other government, simply pulling the migration lever to solve some political or economic problem in a short-term way that leads eventually to infrastructure pressures and higher house prices all
1: sorts of strains on our infrastructure. I would say because it's been done within the context of the broader rebalance settings, we've made some very deliberate decisions, uh, for example, about shifting our economic model away from reliance on very high volumes of very low-wage labour. So you see, for example, still within the accredited employer work visa system, it's still based on a median wage requirement. We have an employer accreditation system to make sure that migrants aren't exploited when they come into the system. Across the green list settings, which we're talking about explicitly today, we're talking about people with the kind of skills that we actually need to boost our productivity and to build our infrastructure. So as I say it's within the broader construct of a rebalance, which is about trying to deal with those some of some of those issues and turn our back on what was a pretty unregulated system previously.
2: Yeah. And I think that's really clear, I mean one of the issues that we've had with our immigration system is the lack of certainty that we've given individuals when you're coming here on short term work visas you haven't necessarily had that clarity over the longer term. Here we've been really clear if you're falling into these um, particular sectors where we have long term workforce issues where you are a skilled migrant, where we know we want to hang on to your skills in the long term, we're giving you much clearer certainty about the pathway and what you can expect. Uh, and being much clearer that for those areas where uh, you don't have that pathway, we're not giving that guarantee that necessarily you'll have that long-term residency option. I think we owe it to those who come to New Zealand to give that clarity uh, over our expectations. Um, Previously, the system did not have that. Uh,
1: When it comes to pressures on infrastructure, you know, housing, all that sort of stuff, if you are in the short term relying predominantly on people coming into New Zealand, extra people, you are going to be putting a lot more pressure on local infrastructure, aren't you? We have, we have outflows. In the short term. Yeah. Keep in mind, we have outflows as well, that is right. But but here I'll actually go back to Ganesh Nana's Productivity Commission report uh, from last year where um, with you know, some of the best uh, analysis available at the Productivity Commission, they've looked at the evidence in this area and come to the conclusion that actually, broadly speaking, we need a migrant workforce in New Zealand if we want to have the skills and we want to have the capacity to deal with the infrastructure deficit and that immigration is not to blame for the uh, uh, infrastructure deficits that have built up over 30 or 40 years. So I think it would be a fair critique if we weren't getting on with the infrastructure build at the same time, mm. but we are. Mm. I guess in terms of, like, um, caps, then, you know, like, when it comes to immigration and, and sort of I know, again, you said that you can't put a number on how many you might have come in in order to sort of solve that issue, but, you know, is there a point where you say, well, actually, infrastructure hasn't moved along at a pace, we don't have the ability, like, do you cap out at some point? Well, um, as the Prime Minister said, across most of these areas, we do have estimates as to what our shortfalls might be in the workforce. The point I was making is that we will fill those uh, shortfalls both through domestic and migration um, uh, pathways. Mm-hmm. We, um, I mean, just just uh, just to come to the the, the question there, um, the answer is that we need to put the foot down. That's what we're doing on the immigration front, whether it's across transport, whether it's across some of the core uh, housing infrastructure that we need, and we can demonstrate the record investment and in some of the outcomes that are coming through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for
0: Minister Wood, you mentioned that the outflow of New Zealanders to Australia was just in line with what we'd seen in the long run, but actually there was net migration of fifteen thousand three hundred New Zealand. To Australia in the last 12 months. It's up from th- 3,000 in the previous five years and it's not much lower than that big 30,000 a year from 2004 to 2013. What's the point of? having extremely high housing costs here that push New Zealanders out and then replacing them with new foreigners who maybe don't know how high our housing costs are. Just for clarity, the,
1: the figures that I was talking about before weren't specifically about the flow from New Zealand to Australia. It was about the flow of New Zealanders generally um, travelling around around the world and exiting New Zealand on a month-to-month basis. But look, in, in respect of Australia, I mean, a couple of things I'd note there. Um, the first is that, that, that there are um, similar challenges in terms of housing costs in most large Australians cities. In at in Melbourne now, um, and secondly, and people. again it's a bit similar to the conversation about, about infrastructure. Of course we recognise that's an issue. That's why we're pursuing policies to try and assist with that issue. Investing um, fifty nine
0: billion when the infrastructure commission
1: says you need to invest two hundred billion. There, there has never been a government in the last 50 years that has invested more in directly building houses and providing the infrastructure to build houses and providing the planning framework to enable the more more building of houses than this government. Just has. to wrap
2: this, if this if your argument is that we should ignore the skill shortages we have and have our hospitals tell us that we don't have the health workforce we need because we don't believe that we've got the infrastructure, I'd push back very very hard on that. We have we have done both, and I think you'd be hard pressed to find a government that hasn't done more to build uh, the, the hospitals that we need, the classrooms that we need, and the houses that we need, and indeed the water infrastructure that we need. And it has not been without its contention, yeah. but we have been focused on fixing our infrastructure.
0: So there we have it. The Prime Minister and Michael Wood, the Immigration Minister, answering my questions about the lack of infrastructure investment. Their simple argument was, um, look, we're doing a lot which, as I said to them at the time, is not enough. The $59 billion planned by the government over the next decade is well below the $209 billion estimated by the Infrastructure Commission. And in effect, the government is not solving our unholy trinity, our impossible trilemma, in which we cannot all at the same time have high population growth in tandem with low taxes and low infrastructure investment, and at the same time allow people to come in and out the border without restrictions. In the end, there is not enough infrastructure, too much congestion, land prices and rents are too high for local workers to actually stay, so they leave the country. And that's what we're seeing in increasing numbers over the last year, a significant new exodus of young New Zealanders, particularly going to Australia, for higher Incomes, And in particular, not just higher salaries, 30 to 40 percent, but lower housing costs relative to incomes. So more ability to save money for deposits for homes. Now you could say, well, that's just normal. If you've got one small country next to a big rich one, there's naturally going to be an outflow. And that um, they'll come home anyway because that's what they always do. And it's true. There is a significant number of people who bounce back, particularly young people who go there to save money, have some fun, uh, live in a big city, and then realise they actually want to come home and start their families. They've saved money for a deposit, and they can do that. And under the current system, post-2001, New Zealanders who go to Australia aren't real Australians in that they don't get access to a lot of welfare, health and education benefits, even though they're paying full taxes. Now that is about to change, and uh, recent moves by the Australian government to welcome in New Zealanders and say, yes, you can be a raw Australian just like us, because we really need your work, uh, that is potentially a game changer come April the 24th next year when it's likely to be confirmed. That means that those people who leave and go to Australia and put down some routes, save a deposit, are not forced to come home. They can stay. And for those people who are forced to come home and and help fill out the workforce here on top of the immigrants coming from all around the world, they don't have to come home. They can stay in Australia. And this illustrates the problem we have with this impossible... Trilemma, this unholy trinity, we cannot have it all. And this announcement uh, uh, this week, the third in five months, illustrates how neither side of politics, national or Labour, are willing to try and solve this impossible trilemma, this unholy trinity, which says you cannot at the same time have high population growth, with low investment and low taxes, and at the same time allow New Zealanders to come and go as they please. At some point the pressure will grow so much that New Zealanders essentially leave the country in droves and you end up chasing your tail, trying to replace the New Zealanders going out with people coming in from India, the Philippines, China, South Africa, wherever it is. Is that the country we want? Because we're a long way towards that If you look at the size of New Zealand's diaspora, people who are living permanently in the rest of the world, obviously Australia being the main place, but plenty in Britain, the United States, continental Europe, we have the fourth highest size of diaspora relative to our population in the world. Behind Lithuania and Latvia, who have a particular problem with their neighbour, Russia, which might encourage a few people (laughs) to migrate, and then, of course, Ireland is the other one. Now, Ireland used to be at the top of the hit parade, but its economy has performed particularly well in the last 20 years, in part because it slashed its taxes and um, was able to welcome in a whole bunch of IT and pharmaceutical companies from the United States and use itself as a launch pad into continental Europe because it's a member of the European Union. That's a sort of bigger-the-neighbour neighbor policy, which is now coming back to haunt them. The Germans aren't very happy. But in the meantime, it has meant that incomes and jobs have risen very sharply in Ireland, and its uh, um, push of people out to migrate out of Ireland has dropped substantially. It's now dropped down those hit parades, but we are not. Because our incomes are 30 to 40% below Australia's, and our housing costs are now much higher than Australia's relative to our incomes, and unlike the pushback from Uh, Michael Wood there Uh, this is a particular problem and a sign that we are failing again to deal with this impossible trilemma, this unholy trinity I'm Bernard Hickey, that was today's version of Vakaka, a podcast that goes out every weekday with my email newsletter uh, via Substack called Vakaka. I'm Bernard Hickey Kaki kite